Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. Now, here's the host of WP Tonic, Jonathan Dinwood and John Locke. Welcome to WP Tonic episode 162 and today we've got web pioneer Jeremy Keith. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Liquid Web. While Liquid Web has best been known as a managed hosting company, with tons of options. It's also designed a managed WordPress offering that is perfect for mission critical sites. If you're looking for improved performance, maximized uptime and incredible support, Liquid Web is the partner that you've been looking for. Every Liquid Web managed WordPress customer also has iTheme Sync integrated into their management portal, allowing them to update several sites with a single touch. If you sign up today using the discount code WPTONIC33, you'll get a 33% discount for the next six months. So visit liquidweb.com slash WordPress to get started. And with that, I'd like to let our uh, honored guests introduce themselves. Uh, Jeremy, for those who don't know you, who are you? And just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Jeremy Keith. Um, I work on the web, uh, making websites. I'm uh, at an agency called Clear Left, which I co-founded back in 2005 with my buddies Andy Budd and Richard Rutter. And yeah, that's pretty much me. Oh, and I, I have a website called adactio.com, and I, I speak my brains over there. Definitely. And Jonathan, uh, my co-host, uh, introduce yourself. Yes, my name is. Um, oh no, my name is Jonathan. And um, I'm losing my bubbles there. I think. Okay, well, I'm the founder of WP Tonic, and we're a WordPress support maintenance company, and we um, support many different ventures in the WordPress community. We're a trusted partner. And I'm John Locke. My business is Lockdown Design. I help uh, blue collar industries with WordPress development and local SEO. Uh, diving right into the questions, uh, you know, recently, you, Jeremy, I just, you know, want to say like your book uh, for the, a book apart uh, for HTML5, that was like maybe the second book that I ever bought on web development. Uh, Jeffrey Zeldman's blue book, uh, Designing Web Standards, was the the first book that I ever bought. Um, but recently you put out a book on the web called Resilient Web Design, where it talks about uh, looking to the past to see the future of things. And, and you give a lot of examples of how the echoes of the past uh, resonate forward in, into conventions and things that we have today. Um, and just, you know, some examples of those and, you know, things that you think might resonate from today into the future. Sure. Um because this isn't something new that I've noticed where um, we're confronted with issues or problems today, but actually they, they seem new, but actually we, we, we've had similar issues in the past. Um, like I remember when, when Ajax came around in like 2005, 2006, 
and everyone was going crazy for Ajax, but it came with all these issues, like this, uh, the back button isn't working quite right, and we couldn't uh, bookmark specific URLs and stuff like that, because they changed. Now, we, we solved those problems in time, but, but anyway, the point was, at the time, I remember thinking, hang on, these problems sound really familiar, and I realized, oh yeah, we had these problems with frames and frame sets, you know, six, seven years earlier, or with uh, Flash, right? Oh, with Flash, you, you know, it's hard to bookmark the particular state of, a, uh, of an app, right? And again and again, I see things where it seems like we're confronting new problems, and actually, we've been here before. Not that I'm saying there's nothing new. There's plenty of new stuff constantly. That's what makes web development so fun. But you start to see patterns. Like, you know, when mobile came along and suddenly like, oh, no, we really need to optimize our images and make sure we aren't making pages too bloated. It's like, well, yes, but that's what we were doing in the late 90s as well, not because of mobile, but because of, you know, the way that networks were, were working and stuff. So just again and again, I keep seeing repeating patterns. Um, and we, t we tend to, to treat things as though they're completely new when, in fact, maybe there's lessons to be learned from the past. Definitely. Um, you know, nowadays, people getting into web development, it, it's almost like they have to learn uh, A to the Z uh, just to get started. And in the early days, all you had to know was, was HTML and then later CSS. Uh, are, have we made the web too complex and, and have we gotten away from the things that made the web take off in the first place? Well, it's funny because it kind of works both ways because... And the truth is, in the old days, when we had uh, you know job titles like webmaster, uh, it meant you were doing literally everything. Yeah, you were doing the HTML and the CSS, but you were also probably making sure the server was up and running, and you were uh, in Photoshop, right? You were doing literally everything. And over time, uh, we've siloed into job roles. So you have, first of all, the difference between web designer and web developer. That was the first kind of silo. And then, you okay, now we've got UX designer compared to, say, you know, interface designer, and then that silos down into more stuff. And then in web developer, people start to specialize there. It might be that in a specific framework or library. So on the one hand, there's more and more specialization, right? You can, you can be a React developer, or you could be an Angular developer rather than just web developer. And yet at the same time, you're right, even with that level of specialization, there's still um, a lot of stuff to learn. Now, I would say that most of the extra stuff that's come along isn't necessarily stuff that's in browsers. There is a lot more stuff in browsers, right? A lot more to HTML and CSS and JavaScript these days than there was 15, 20 years ago. But a lot of the extra stuff that overwhelms people is often around the processes and the tools. Like, you're right, it's not enough to know HTML and CSS or even JavaScript. It's like you've got to know... Um, uh, build tools like either Gulp or Grunt, and you've got to know version control, and you've got to know uh, um, all these different workflow things that aren't directly related to what the end user is going to see in a web browser, but are part and parcel of being a web developer. You know what I mean? So I um, there's, there's this like, weird thing where things have gotten more and more specialized and at the same time more and more broad. Um, and then you have you know people calling themselves full, full stack developers, but I don't think you can genuinely have full knowledge of the entire stack to the same degree. People inevitably have you know a bumpy um, knowledge base, which is totally fair enough. Like I you know you're going to know more about one area than another. I might know some server stuff, but I wouldn't call myself you know an expert on the server side of things. Um, 
so yeah, I think I think things are lumpy, and it's mostly okay. Where it's not okay is if people have the impression that um, lumpiness isn't okay, that that they should know everything, that they need to know everything, that they should be completely au fait with all of HTML and all of CSS and all of JavaScript and React and Angular and these build tools. And it's frankly, it's okay to pick and choose. Um, I, t I think that when you're picking and choosing, it's good to understand the time scales of the things you're picking and choosing. So, you know, doubling down on HTML or CSS or raw JavaScript is going to be a good long-term investment. They're not going anywhere, right? So it's a kind of a safe bet to say, I'm going to actually spend some time to really get to know CSS or to really get to know JavaScript, the language. Doubling down in a framework is also a valuable use of time, but as long as you realize it, it might not be forever, right? So you can become a React expert today. Maybe React won't be the framework of choice in three, four, five years' time. Or you could become an Angular expert or whatever the framework is. Or in the same with the tools, like you can get really, really good at, at, at uh, Gulp or Grunt or, or whatever tools you're using. But understand that tools can be swapped out and should be swapped out you know, when better tools come along. Um, and as long, as long as you understand that, I think it's okay to like immerse yourself in those worlds and, and understand, well, this might not last forever. Um, where there might be some dissonance is, and you might feel disillusioned is like, oh, I spent you know, years getting up to speed with this framework, and now that framework isn't popular anymore. So I feel like I've wasted those years, right? So it's understanding the time scales of the, of the tools and technologies can help, help you decide where you want to invest your own time. No, I, th I think that's really great what you said. Like, um, if if you dive into the foundational, uh, you know, of ideas of the, you know, different things like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, you will have a, an understanding that's going to outlast any of the frameworks that are popular today. Because one thing that we've seen is the one thing that's constant on the web is change. Everything that is here today will be gone at some point. I mean, at one point, it, we were all developing in Flash, and now that's all but gone. Um, what do you think like brings about the obsession with tools uh, over you know, other things like the principles? Um, well, developers are into tools because I mean they're, they're kind of the gadgets of our our day-to-day -day, and we like gadgets I think is, is kind of the thing so I, I understand it and you know when I was younger I probably would have been just as into like the latest and greatest tool but the longer you're around the more you start to realize oh yeah this will this will come and go there'll be another one along in a minute and, and that's okay um, yeah it, it's in, I think we like to have um, black and white answers to things I mean, this is one of the reasons why you know programming or developing appeals to some people more than, say, design, because with design there there isn't necessarily always a objective, correct answer. It's there's quite a lot of subjective analysis in it. Whereas with programming, like if you can logically achieve something, then it is correct and right. You know, clean code, good code. There's there's a more objective things you can run through it. So. This idea that there is a correct way to do something means there's more room for the perfect tool or you know, this theoretical perfect tool. If I just find the perfect tool, then what I do will be perfect. Um, I don't think there is a perfect tool, right? And actually, tools turn out to be more subjective than we realize, right? The tools come with biases. They come with human ideals baked in. They actually aren't 
purely technological creations. They're actually creations of, of ideals. They're just kind of buried a bit deeper in, in technology. Um, but I understand that desire to have that kind of rigidly defined answer to something. Um, but inevitably, I think over time you come to realize that there's there isn't necessarily a a right way to do anything, and uh, you just have to accept that. Definitely, um, you know, people don't understand today, but uh, because we take a lot of things like browser support uh, for granted. But but what was it like during the the web standards movement, and and why is that important to the web today? I feel, I feel like this is like the "What did you do in the war, Grandpa?" question. Right? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> but it's totally a fair question, and and I, I do feel like the old man on the porch because I do feel like saying to the kids today is like, "You don't know how lucky you are. You got such great browser support." Uh, I mean, I was doing a little bit of browser testing myself recently, and you know, going into browser stack and trying different versions. And sure, there were there were some issues. It's some you know older versions of IE or or Safari or something. But honestly, compared to the old days. Uh, everything is everything is so much better. It was so bad in the '90s that uh, I mean, effectively there were two browsers. Okay, I've just insulted all the Opera fans from the 1990s, but effectively you had Netscape and you had Internet Explorer, right? Versions three, four, five, and so on. And the the way they were trying to win the browser wars was, was by deliberately being incompatible. I mean, to to petty levels where like one browser introduced the acronym element. So people they would just make up HTML elements, completely yeah. proprietary. And then the other browser would say, right, well, we definitely won't support that, and we will create this abbreviation element instead. And so as an author, you either pick and choose. It's like, you know, which parent do you love most? Or you've got to just do it both ways. So it's bad enough in, in HTML, and this is kind of pre-CSS, but um, it was even worse in JavaScript. So it was like we were being sold this marketing term, DHTML, which made yep. it sound like a you know cool new flavor of HTML, like XHTML, and actually it's you know it's just this rubbish term for just doing things with JavaScript. It's supposed to stand for dynamic HTML, and if you actually tried doing anything with JavaScript in those days, you had to write your code twice because the, the 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 object model for Netscape Navigator was this whole document layers thing, and then the, the object model for Internet Explorer was the document all, and they were completely incompatible, and you had to write everything twice. And that was just to do anything in to do with the DOM in JavaScript. Um, you know, never mind the HTML incompatibilities, the CSS incompatibilities. And it's interesting, you know, when people think of the Web Standards Project, um, I guess there's a whole whole new generation of developers don't even know about the Web Standards Project, but you know, they did this incredible work in the late 90s, early 2000s to try and convince browsers to get on board with standard support. And, and we tend to think of it in terms of uh, CSS, right? Because CSS was, was, was out at this point. It's like, please implement CSS in a standards way instead of making up your own stuff all the time. Um, but actually, the reason why the Web Standards Project was kicked off was because of the incompatible dumb. It was because of that JavaScript pain. Uh, and for years, it poisoned the JavaScript chalice. Like in the early 2000s, everyone was interested in CSS because that was the cool new thing. And everyone had written off JavaScript. It was like, oh, JavaScript, that's, that's buggy. It's inaccessible. Um, it's nasty. I mean, most people associate it with pop-up windows, right? Or it's really bad form validation. And I, and I started to pay attention to JavaScript. Like I guess I, I just like underdogs. And at this point, the browsers had actually come around. and it was standardized. We had a, an actual document object model that they'd agreed on. 
And this is why in like 2004, 2005, I was like the crazy guy going, no, you should totally look at JavaScript. JavaScript's good and, and it's cross-browser and you can write your code once and it actually runs everywhere. And it was met with very skeptical responses. What's funny is, you know, a few years after that, I'm the one going, hey, maybe you could ease up with the JavaScript because <laughs> then everyone started just doing everything in JavaScript to, you know, Things always seem to go in pendulum swings to you know, extremes, complete rejection, complete acceptance, and uh, maybe there's a happy ground in the middle. But yeah, the, the browser scenario back in the old days was so much worse. Um, and we lived through a little bit of that, um, you know, a few years back with, with the uh, uh, vendor prefixes in CSS, mm -hmm. which were intended, the intentions were good, the idea was good. And that's an interesting case where the blame, I think, has to be equally apportioned between, you can't just blame the browser makers, you can't blame the standards bodies, you have to also blame developers who treated what was intended as a short-term fix, they treated it as a long-term thing, like dash WebKit everything and then never revisit that code, never go back and take out that prefix. And that's where you got that situation where browsers were implementing the vendor prefixes of other browser companies, which was never the intention. So we got a bit of a flavor of, of uh, a mini uh, browser war there, I guess, with the vendor prefixes, but, but nothing as bad as the early days. Um, and these days, um, yeah, it just feels like a bit of a golden age. I mean, these days, the, the way that browsers compete is kind of how fast and how quickly can they implement the standards, right? Which is great. It's like if I, if I have complaints about a browser these days, it's because they haven't yet shipped support for some really exciting um, CSS feature or JavaScript API. But it's almost like there's no question that they will. They're not going to create a proprietary API. They're going to ship. They're going to do the standards thing. It's just a matter of when. And I'm impatient, and I want them to ship it now. Like that's the most I have to complain about. Uh, it's a pretty good situation to be in. It is a great situation. Uh, you know, and speaking of which, like you know, what things do you see, you know, coming out in the next year uh, or two that we will transform uh, a lot of things? I mean, we just recently talked with Rachel Andrew. Um, and CSS Grid is is just about uh, to be supported by all the browsers. Flexbox uh, was a real game changer. You, you know what other things are out there that that you're excited for in browser support? Yeah, well, definitely Grid. Grid has got to be a big one because, as as Rachel and and Jen Simmons pointed out, like the support is going to land more or less at the same time across a bunch of the major browsers. So it's going to suddenly go from like almost zero support to really, really good support, and it'll happen pretty much overnight. Um, grid, grid is really interesting for particular kinds of layout, I think, and that will hopefully get a bit of creativity back into web design maybe where things become a little stale, so that, that's very exciting. Um, so the CSS stuff like that, yeah, Grid is a big one. I'm, I've just about got my head around Flexbox, so now I've got to get my head around a, a whole other way of, of doing things with layout, but like you say, you know, there's always something changing. Um, on the JavaScript side, I think a lot, a lot of people are paying attention to JavaScript language features, which is getting you know, the whole, uh, whatever we're calling it now, ES6 or ES2015 or whatever, whatever we're calling the new, the new additions to the language. Um, that's all nice and everything, but I tend to get a bit more excited about APIs, about the, what you can do in the browsers. Um, and, and there, things roll out at different rates, to be sure, across different browsers, but... Uh, it's it's you know slowly but surely that the heat's getting turned up on just what you can do in a web browser 
these days. Like I remember even a few years ago, if I was sitting down with a client and we're trying to figure out should they build something on the web or should they build something native? And it would almost always come down to uh, some technical consideration around what you could or couldn't do on the web versus what you could or couldn't do in native. And if I were to have that discussion today, there's a lot fewer things that you can only do in native. Now, it might be patchy support on the web for some of this stuff, but it's it's emerging. So there's a lot of it's to do with access to device APIs, right? You know, accelerometer stuff or sensors, stuff like that. That's all emerging. The payment API stuff that's that's hitting browsers now is pretty exciting. Um, you've got stuff like image recognition in the browser, you know, through APIs, which, you know, recognizing faces, recognizing text, uh, all these these little building blocks that piece by piece add up to being able to build native-like experiences, but on the web. Um, it, it's, it, it is patchy. It's, it doesn't always land at the same time, but bit by bit it's happening. The one that excites me the most, though, by far, is service workers. Um, the, the ability to, to finally get around the problem of network connectivity. Uh, it's always been a deal breaker on the web. You know, if you can't connect to the internet, well, obviously you can't look at a website. That's the way it is. And now it's like, well, if you can't get, connect to the internet, you might still be able to use this website if you've already visited it once and it had a service worker and it did all this stuff. Um, so that's pretty exciting, uh, service workers by far. And then service workers itself is kind of just an umbrella term for all these underlying APIs, which is the ability to fetch resources over the network, right? The fetch API, the ability to access the cache, the cache API, the ability potentially to do notifications. Again, you know, support is patchy, but it's all the groundwork's being laid. Um, and when you start to add up all that stuff, there's fewer and fewer things that only native can do. I mean, particularly things like notifications, offline functionality, those are big ones. Those are really, really big ones. Um, so that's, that's pretty exciting. And then service workers as an idea kind of taps into this model of, of standards of this whole extensible web idea where instead of instead of we try and figure out the use cases and then we ship something that solves that use case no let's ship these little building blocks let people build the things that they want and then we can try and standardize on what they've built you know what i mean so um web components being a similar idea um all these underlying APIs. even in css there's this idea of houdini where you would literally be able to um script how things could get rendered to the screen with some custom CSS. It's, um, it's an interesting approach that uh, we switch over to shipping low-level APIs to developers, and then they throw the spaghetti at the wall, and we see what sticks. Uh, I, I hope it will work out well. As long as I get my service workers, I'm happy. I'm honestly so excited about that. That's I, it, To me, it feels like um, the feeling around Ajax, around 2005, 2006. I mean, Ajax was a bit of a mania in kind of like the tulip mania in Holland, uh, you know, the yep. people went kind of crazy for it. But when things settled down, it was like, actually, that was a game changer. And using the web before Ajax is fundamentally different to using the web after Ajax. And I feel like service workers has the potential to f have that same feeling. I'm wary of overhyping it in the same way that people overhyped Ajax, but there's no doubt, um, just objectively looking at it, it's fundamentally a game changer. No, that's really great. Uh, we're up against our first break, and uh, so when we come back, we're going to be talking more with web legend uh, Jeremy Keith. 
Do you want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up to date so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with full, no question asked, 30 day money back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's wp-tonic.com. Just like the podcast. We're coming back from our break. We're talking with our guest, Jeremy Keith. Uh, Jeremy, we were talking about before the break, you know, how the pendulum is swinging back toward the web. For a while there, like everybody was rushing to develop in native as opposed to uh, the web. But now there's a lot of support for uh, APIs for web that, you know, you can do most of the things that you can do in native. Um, you know, if you're like a web developer, um, you know, looking to explore new technologies. What's your advice to to front end developers that that want to explore like all the things that uh, are coming out with with uh, various levels of browser support? Um, well, first of all, you got to you're in a great situation because you know browsers themselves make it easy. The developer tools in browsers are fantastic, and you get to go in and switch on features that are still in development. I mean, that's that's really nice. That's that's a really good. Uh, change in the way that, that browsers are shipping features that we get early access to stuff, um, and then you've got you know online tools. You've got things like CodePen and you know JSPen, where you've literally got a playground. You can literally go and, and play with something. Not to mention you got GitHub. Like somebody's already probably done an experiment, and you can fork it, and you can clone it, and you can you know push changes back in. Uh, I mean, that's pretty wonderful. All of these things to me feel like they're extensions of the kind of the spirit of the web itself. And it's, the web has always been a very uh, sharing place where the default attitude is you make something cool or you experiment and you go, oh, look what I made, right? And you put it out there and you share it just for the sake of it. Um, you don't hold on to it. And even today it feels like it's like that, but even more so because we have these tools and we have these services that let us do that. So first of all, you've got a great... Um, environment in terms of the the, the browsers, the, the online services, the, the tools, version control, whatever it is, we got we got good tools these days. Now, in terms of choosing what you want to play, like what are you interested in? Um, there's a lot of choice, right? Uh, I think I think one of the things to be aware of is not so much the reasons to choose something, but what are the bad reasons for choosing something? And I think a bad reason to choose a technology is because you heard it's going to be really popular and there'll be lots of jobs in that technology. <laughs> I mean, from a cold-hearted money perspective, yes, that might be true. But let's say, okay, you've heard that there's going to be a lot of work in you know, some particular programming language. And so you double down on that programming language. You don't particularly like it, but you, you know it's going to be you know, a, a good income. Well, now you're going to spend the rest of your life programming in a language that you don't particularly like, right? So it's, I think it's really important you find something you, you enjoy doing and then just chase that. And because there is enough variety, you can, you can kind of get away with it. It can feel sometimes, and I, I, I know I get this feeling, it's like I have to learn technology X. Like if I don't get on that train, I'm going to be left behind, whatever. But actually, when you step back, it's a big web out there. And you can absolutely specialize in something, right? You can become, 
the SVG person, like the person people go to when they think of SVG, or you can become the Flexbox person or the grid person. You can you can narrow in. And now you should choose to become that person because you really like that technology and it really resonates with you and you enjoy doing it. Um, but if you if you think like, well, I have to learn how to make, you know, Angular or React apps or Ember or whatever it is because I keep hearing about it and the hype is really big, but I'm actually not that into it, um, you're probably just going to put yourself off working on the web at all, right? Because you're going to end up not enjoying, doing something you don't enjoy. Um, so yeah, my advice is more around the reason why you decide to go down a particular route is make sure it's something that interests you. Like you see something and go, oh, that's cool. I want to know how that works. I want to want to play with that thing. Not, oh, I heard it's going to be really big and I better get on board with that thing. Yep. Jonathan, do you have uh, a question? Yeah, sure, Jerry. Um, obviously, we're kind of WordPress focused, but we decided this year we would broaden out the the guests that we would ask to come on the show. Um, I don't know. Do you um, use WordPress at all, or if you don't, what what's your kind of outsider view of the WordPress community and where it's going in general? Um, so I don't use WordPress myself. I mean, I have my own. I've got personal site, I've got blogs, but um, I'm a bit of a control freak, so I ended up writing my own blogging software, which is always a terrible idea. <laughs> I really wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Um, we've done a project or two at Clear Left, I think, that, that used WordPress behind the scenes. Um, in terms of the community, um, so I meet WordPress, I meet people from Automatic uh, when I go to conferences, particularly if they're sponsoring the conference and they're you know, really nice people. And actually, I know Matt, Matt Mullenweg, going back to like 2005, I met him at... Um, at South by, um, back. Uh, yeah, I remember when it was. Uh, uh, he had his uh, he had his birthday at South by when he was first legally allowed to drink. Uh, <laughs> he was one of those like <clears throat> sickeningly talented young people who've accomplished more before they're twenty one than you'll ever do. And yeah, it was it was that kind of feeling. Like I hate you, I really hate you. But uh, it's been it's been really interesting to see the community grow. Um, and grow. I mean, the size is just unbelievable. I haven't uh, been to any WordPress-specific events, um, but I, 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 I can I can make comparisons. Which is that I got asked to speak at DrupalCon. You know, Drupal specific, and I don't use Drupal either. Um, so first, I was surprised that they asked me, but they they wanted like you're doing, right? Get people from outside the community, um, and that was really interesting to see. Like this an event with thousands of people, and it's all about one particular piece of software. Um, that kind of blew my mind because I'm used to going to events that are about big, you know, like web design or web development, very broad topics. And here's like a huge event and it's about one particular software community. Uh, and that was Drupal, never mind WordPress. WordPress is even bigger, right? So um, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, if anything, um, what I find interesting about things like WordPress is less about the software and less about the technology and much more about the, the culture and the... Um, yeah, the organizational stuff behind it. How some things that aren't quite companies, but like like foundations. The foundation model, I'm not quite sure what it is, but I'm very interested in. It, right, you got the Mozilla Foundation. There's a WordPress Foundation. There's a Wikimedia Foundation, and it's clear they're not the same as companies, but they're not charities either. There's some some interesting. Uh, third place going on here, like these places where people come together and they collaborate on a thing, but it isn't for 
shareholder value or turning a profit. Uh, everyone gets something out of it. It's something really interesting going on there um, about how people collaborate, which is another thing that kind of fascinates me. And we were talking earlier about um, um, resilient web design and, and um, I seeing how the web got made at CERN fascinated me because I started to realize that I don't think the web could have emerged from a traditional corporate environment, mm. right? Um, there's something about the spirit of it, like I said, that openness, that sharing, just making it open to everyone, right? That was a that was a huge deal, and so there's something interesting about things emerging from these collaborative environments. And WordPress is a good example, like I said, Wikip Wikipedia is another example, Mozilla, um, yeah, they're, they're kind of fascinating to me. Yeah, the uh, I think you touched on it in part one of our discussion with John is you seeing the web being able to run full, fully functioning applications because um, when the iPhone, when the smartphone came on the scene in the Bay Area, I live on the edge of the Bay Area and John's the same, but it's literally um, a lot of people in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area, they're kind of, you know, the venture capitalists, the um this week in startups, um, the whole community, well, the web's finished, all the action is apps, mobile well, apps. What's interesting is that when the iPhone first launched, there was, there weren't, there was no app store, right? It was, it was, Steve Jobs was kind of ahead of his time because everyone's like, when can we make apps? And he says, you can make them today. You just got to make them in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and ship them in a web browser, um, which is 10 years ahead of its time because it's only kind of now with this idea of progressive web apps and service workers and all the stuff that, oh, yeah, we could make something. But no, completely like, I mean, the web has been declared dead numerous times, you know, rumors of its demise are greatly exaggerated. But um, also, it's, it's not really helpful to talk about, um, you know, something killing something else or something being a winner, therefore something else is losing. Because if you look back at the history of any technology, what happens is things live side by side. And things grow in importance and other things diminish in importance, but they never actually disappear. Um, Kevin Kelly wrote a book uh, a few years back. I think it might have been in What Technology Wants, where he he did a bit of investigation and he came to this conclusion. It sounds like such a um, daring statement, but he said, no technology has ever gone extinct. That if you look into some, the most obscure technology, you will find, and he doesn't mean that you know it's in a museum somewhere. It means that somewhere, some someone in the world is actually still using a technology. In other words, it's a way of plowing fields or a way of printing paper. There's the technology never quite disappears. It just diminishes in importance. Um, and you know, television didn't kill radio, and the internet didn't kill television. It's just you, each kind of finds its own level and finds out what they're good for. And, the, you know, apps didn't kill the web, and the web won't kill apps because absolutely some things I want to have an app for, right? Things I do, things I return to every day, it's actually very, very useful to have, yeah. you know, that shell already loaded up on my device and, and, and all of that. Now, that said, people try to turn everything into app, in, apps, including things you'd only ever want to use once, right? And that's such a, a high level of friction to something that there's no incentive for anyone to download your app to just view the bus timetable and then delete it because they're never going to need it again, right? Um, the, the web is very good for those just uh, one-off kind of things. Um, it's also pretty good for infrequent snacking. But yeah, the more you start to do stuff 
constantly, maybe there's an argument to be made to, well, you should probably install the app, right? This is kind of something that's living there permanently part of your life. Maybe maybe an app is good for that. Um, and games is another area where, frankly, probably just for performance reasons, maybe native is always going to be that bit better than web. And, you know, that's probably famous last words. But the truth is, you know, apps are going to be good for some things. Web is good for others. And it's making the right choice for the right kind of situation. Yeah, I think you your point of view on that is spot on, actually. Um, like you say, if you're not using it that often, um, I actually get annoyed where kind of companies package um, an app, but you might only use it like once a month or every six months. You don't really want that on your phone, really, do you? Yeah, um, um, Scott Jensen's talked about this as a just-in-time interactions, right? You just want to walk up to something, use it, and then walk away again. And uh, he's been doing some really interesting work with sort of bridging the gap between the web and the physical world. It's this whole idea of the physical web where you've got these beacons and instead of them being smart beacons doing this very clever stuff, they're actually incredibly dumb by design, almost like in the same way that the internet is a dumb network. And all these beacons do is they broadcast a URL. And yeah. you open up your device and find those URLs. And then the, the intelligence lies at the other end of the URL, right? The, the thing you need to do, the smartness, the network effects come from that. So I, that's something else that I find an interesting idea. Like, what can we learn from apps? What can we learn from native that's useful and take that into the web? I mean, that, that's another thing. That's, that's happened over the history of the web as well, where other um, uh, you know, competitors, you could say, to the web come along. And they're objectively better than the web for a while. And the web can't keep up. But what they do is they show the way for the web. They're like research and development for the web. When CD-ROMs were around, you could do so much more in a CD-ROM than you could in a web browser. But they pointed the way to the kind of interactions that people wanted. When Flash was around, Flash was better than CSS or JavaScript combined. But it showed us, like, yeah, you know what? Animations would be really cool. We should really have good animations and, and this kind of stuff. And now we've got native. And it's like, well, we can't quite reach the level just yet, but we definitely want to have sensors and we want to accelerate. We want all the stuff that native have. It's like they act as a roadmap for the web. It's kind of the, the tortoise and the hare. Yeah, um, I actually got into the web uh, through flash design, actually. I actually missed, I missed something. I got in. You know, the, there was um, a small group of really fantastic Japanese animators that got into flash design, didn't they? Um, I, I, they really got me going. It was just amazing. Um, yeah, the level of creativity in the flash community was um, very inspiring. I mean, it's showing my age, I'm sure, but thinking back to you know, the websites like Prey Station and Once Upon a Forest and uh, um, all these things, like really should like, oh, this is what we want to be able to do on the web. And at the time, the only way you could do it was in Flash. These days, you could do all that stuff with SVG and CSS and JavaScript. That's, yeah, we, we shouldn't take it for granted, you know, and also that people push the boundaries. I think there's always a need for a community like that who are doing things kind of just for the sake of it just to push the boundaries. It's almost like the artists, they, they, they go forward and they push the boundaries of what you can do with this technology. And it probably isn't a commercial value to what they're doing, but that's okay. They're just pushing on the edges of what you can do. And then over time that feeds back into, you know, everyday work. Um, another, uh, another area I'd love to get your opinion on is um, the next development in the web. It, the way I saw it, especially with the iWatch, 
was voice recognition. You know, a lot Google, um, Apple have put a lot of money into artificial intelligence around voice recognition. Um, so you can have a you know, wear the watch, which in commercial terms, I think everybody would agree, um, hasn't been an enormous success for Apple. You are comparing it to enormous sales volumes, though, what Apple considers a success. But um, I always saw the iPhone, if the iPhone was really going to take off, you really needed rock solid voice recognition, uh, which hasn't come about. Do you see that in the end happening in the next five years? Or do you, there seems a lot of talk about artificial, this is a very big question, but I, I just wanted to see what your thoughts were. There's a lot of talk now um, that artificial intelligence is really going to explode. But I've been hearing that for about 30 years and it comes and it goes. What do you think voice and voice recognition still is pretty rough, isn't it? Especially if you're not in a totally quiet room. Um, well, well, a lot of people are excited about um, the Amazon Echo and Alexa and saying this is they've nailed it. They've got it absolutely right. And actually, uh, it's good. Like the Amazon Echo is good and the Alexa voice recognition is good. And it seems amazing because everything else is just so terrible. Like Siri is so bad and, and that, that by comparison, Alexa seems amazing. Actually, we're, we're probably, we probably are in like that part of the hype cycle, you know, with the, the, uh, the peak of overinflated expectations. And that will inevitably follow, be followed by the trough of disillusionment as we realize like, well, we overhyped it, we were wrong, whatever. But what comes after that is the, the plateau of productivity. Where okay, we didn't it, it didn't change the world, but it turns out it's really useful in some situations. Oh, and actually, the quality is good enough now, because um, you're right. The quality right now isn't good enough, and we could dismiss it and say it'll never be good enough. But I'd be wary of saying never, because for many many years, a technology that was frankly pretty terrible was touch capacitive touch we had touch screens in kiosks we had touch screens you know uh, out in the world and they were awful you know atms and, and stuff like that you try to use them and they were never quite right and then one day they were right one day it felt fine and you know you put the pieces together you get something like the iphone which completely changes mobile computing um but there were you know 20 years of crappy touch screens before we got the iphone so maybe there'll be you know years and years of crappy voice recognition then one day it's like hey i just realized voice recognition is actually really good um when it comes to estimating the time scales i have no clue right yeah. this this the idea of prediction and estimations is it's it's a mug's game you know but um I would say it's inevitably going to get better. It's not going to get worse. I don't think there's an upper ceiling on, on voice recognition. As for artificial intelligence, you're right. It's one of those things like cold fusion. I, I don't mean the language. I mean the actual cold fusion technology. Oh, I think you where, mean both, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> As in like, oh, it's just around the corner. Uh, yeah, I've been hearing that for 30 years. But our artificial intelligence is an interesting one because what's happened there is that the, dev, the definition of what we mean by artificial intelligence has changed completely over the years. You know, actual AI researchers must be gritting their teeth in, in frustration at the way, you know, everything is now suddenly artificial intelligence. Like, oh, the way we calculate your grocery bill uses artificial intelligence. Like, well, now you're just moving the goalposts, right? Because um, in a way, what we have today is 
artificial intelligence. Google is artificial intelligence. If you told you know me 15 years ago, I'd be able to type this into Google and it would instantly return this response. I would go, that's amazing. That must be artificial intelligence. But it's kind of like the, the Chinese Rubin problem, right? Like, be, yes, to me on the outside, it, it, it looks like artificial intelligence, but we know it's not. It's actually just brute force, right? Loads of servers crunching lots and lots of data. But if the end result is indistinguishable, from artificial intelligence, then maybe we do call it artificial intelligence. Maybe it's not true artificial intelligence in the way that the the philosophers would argue, right? Uh, in a Turing test kind of way, I suppose. Um, but no, I think um, that stuff will get more and more powerful. What's interesting is to observe how different companies approach this issue in terms of where they put the intelligence. With um, Google, it's all about putting the intelligence on the network, right? You've got these you have devices that are simply conduits to the network. I mean, the Chromebook would be the classic example. It's a laptop that literally only has a web browser on it, right? Or, you know, the Android phone. That's a conduit to Google. And the intelligence is in these server farms, crunching these numbers and able to do amazing things. Whereas Apple has been more about actually more personal computing, where it's, it's, it is the device in your pocket. And that's where the intelligence lies, or lack of it in the case of Siri, right? Um, but there's an interesting philosophical approach there about where you choose to chase the artificial intelligence dream. Do you attempt to chase it at the local level of the in the device, or do you attempt to make it on the network? In which case, it's almost like you're back to the, the, the world of mainframes. Right, where you you log into a central supercomputer, but you've actually got a fairly dumb terminal uh, in your pocket. Um, I'm not sure which approach is right or wrong, or whether there's a right or wrong. It's just very interesting to observe the the, the different ways of, of approaching it. Yeah, the reason why I brought the question up it was a very and you handled it with great authority because it was a bit of a broad question, wasn't it? Uh, but the reason why I brought it up was there were you know you know. And I think you really answered it before because you're saying that even if it came about where you could use speech rather than using a keyboard, you just asked a question and it would come up on a display, um, you probably still would use the web as well. It'd just be an additional element, wouldn't it, really? Because... Yeah, so, I mean, let's let's not confuse the web with with display either. And um, this is why I'm actually you know excited about speech software. On the input side, to a certain extent, but I'm actually very I I, I really like the idea of speech output. Um, I like anything that gets us away from thinking about um, screens and and that the web must automatically be on a screen. Like we've we fell into the trap of thinking that the web is on a desktop screen, and then. The iPhone comes out, and oh my God, we have to change everything because it turns out the web is also on a smaller screen. And then, you know, iPads come out. Okay, they're on different size screens, but we're still thinking the web is on screens, and it's not necessarily. I mean, there's not CSS is visual for the most part if we're not counting oral style sheets, but HTML. There's nothing visual about HTML. I just structure, and you might think, yeah, but it doesn't matter as long as I make it look how it's supposed to look on the screen and behave how it's supposed to behave on a screen, then everything's fine, right? Well, your assumption there is that it's always going to be on a screen. And with speech starting to become interesting in terms of input, but also output, then you can start to ask the question, how would my website work if it were read out? Like, is it logically structured? And funny enough, and this, this is where I, I love the irony of this, that what it will come back to is 20-year-old and 25-year-old technologies, which is 
semantic HTML. Like these things that seem so boring and like not at all cutting edge could end up being the most important thing when it comes to the most cutting edge technology like speech is that actually if, if you want your website to work well when it's spoken, you better make sure you're using good old fashioned structured HTML. Um, there's, you know, there's this irony that if you want to be really future friendly, you the best way to do it is to be backwards compatible. So kind of finish up, um, I, I don't know if John would want a, a finishing question before we go on the bonus content. Hopefully you have a bit of extra time. Um, is, um, you know, you, you dealt with the WordPress, you know, you've used it a couple of times, but on agency level, I've got the impression that you don't use it very often. It, what, is there any particular content management system that you regularly turn to, agency-based? Uh, no, it's just that we, uh, by design, don't do back-end development. All right. Um, so that was early on. We made that decision that we'd. Uh, so we're primarily a design agency rather right. than a development agency. We do development, but only on the front end, HTML, CSS, JavaScript. So you keep away from all that horrible stuff. For the most part, yes. And part of that was um, that where if you're going to do front end development, you can you can pretty much say, okay, well, as long as we do HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, we're covered. Whereas if you do back end development, you kind of have to back a horse. Like, well, are we Ruby or Python or PHP? And it's very rare that you, in a small agency you could say, oh, we do all of those things. That would be yeah. spreading yourself really thin. Um, so we don't do that. Now, ironically, these days when we say, oh, we do front-end development, that area has now become so siloed and specific that people say, oh, good, because we've got this uh, Angular app we want you to build. And we're like, oh, actually, well, no, not that kind of front-end development. That actually feels more like building a, on the back end, right, because you're doing business logic and, and all and unit tests and all this stuff um so that that separation frankly no longer really holds true as it once did um but also if the truth is over time there's been the occasional project where we did do some back-end development as well yeah. uh i dabbled on a django project a few years back so that was an interesting dive into that and of course you know we have our own websites like the clear left website itself and we do events so we have to build those websites and then we would use a cms to build those websites um Currently, the CMS we've been using, and it seems pretty good, is uh, Craft, the Craft CMS, yeah. which I think came out of the Expression Engine. Community. It definitely, because it was uh, when I was in the UK, um, I did develop a couple of Expression websites, and it was big in the um, web community, wasn't it? In the UK, yeah. wasn't it? Expression Engine, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it crossed over with the kind of the web standards crowd. They, they, they quite liked it. I think it was quite a nice design, I think. On my own personal projects. So, I mean, if truth be told, where I get to experiment more with the web technologies isn't so much on the client work. It tends to be on the personal projects. So yeah. I have like my own website and I've got a community website I run on, on this and that and, and various things on the side. Uh, and there it is mostly PHP that I would dabble in. Not because I have any particular you know love for it. It's just that that's what I learned whatever, 15 years ago. So that's what I'm still writing in today. I've I'm a total hacker, though. Completely just dabble in that stuff, get it to do what I need it to do, and then put it out live. Um, I certainly wouldn't ever want to be accepting a paycheck for for my PHP. What about you, John? Got a final question before we go uh, on to bonus content? Yeah, final question. Uh, when it comes to progressive enhancement, what are the biggest misconceptions that people have about progressive enhancement, and why is it important? <laughs> Yeah, I would say the biggest misconception about progressive enhancement is that it limits your choices in what you in technological choices. Like, oh, if I use progressive enhancements, then I can't use, you know, the latest cutting edge 
JavaScript API or I can't use this particular um, tool, and and that's simply not true. Um, if anything, progressive enhancement is a way to give you a free pass to try out these technologies because you can absolutely use a technology that only works in one browser, but as long as you're using progressive enhancement, that's fine because all the other browsers get something, right? The other biggest misconception is that progressive enhancement means providing all functionality to everyone, right? That if you're going to provide something to someone, you have to provide it to everyone. And that's simply not the case. Um, it's much more nuanced than that. Progressive enhancement means doing a bit of work to figure out, well, what's actually the, the core functionality? Right? What's vital? And you make sure that that's available to everyone. But that core functionality can be surprisingly basic. Right? It can be as simple as, like, I need to be able to read some text on the screen, right? read some information. And you could decide to draw the line and say, everything beyond that is going to require the latest and greatest JavaScript and you know, cutting-edge CSS. And that's OK. That's progressive enhancement because you still made sure that the, the core functionality is available. Um, some people like to draw that distinction on a you know, product by product basis. Like, okay, this is a, a, an informational website, therefore use progressive enhancement. It's, you know, it's text-based or whatever, it's a blog, or something like that. Whereas this thing over here is like, a, it's like Gmail, therefore it's totally okay to require you know, JavaScript for everything. But I think even that's a bit too um, broad a brushstroke because and I've been thinking about this. I think where you need to draw the distinction is almost between read-write functionality. Like any app, and let's, let's talk about web apps. Any app is very rarely completely about write. Right? It, it, there's always some element of read involved. So an, uh, an email app like Gmail is a good example. Okay, if I don't have the latest and greatest browser, maybe I can't compose an email. Maybe I can't you know, sort my email and move things into different boxes because that functionality requires a certain level of JavaScript, sure. But I should still be able to read my email, right? Because that, the level of functionality required for that is simply HTML on a screen. So again, this is with, with people wanting nice, simple, clear answers to things. They want to be able to slot things into boxes and say, okay, this kind of site you should use progressive enhancement and this kind of site you shouldn't. But actually, I think it's, you can do it kind of across the board, but it does require you to answer some questions up front and really think about what you're providing and think, well, what's the, what's the baseline? What's the one thing that everyone should be able to do with this site or this app? Make sure they can do it and then go crazy and use whatever technology you want after that. And yeah, that's why the biggest misconception with progressive enhancement is that you're, you're providing everything to everybody. That would be completely unfeasible. Excellent. Um, so with that, we're going to wrap up the uh, show. Uh, what do you What do you think, Jonathan? Do we got time for a bonus, or? Oh yeah, I think we. Uh, are you up for that, Keith? For having another ten minutes? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's okay. very gracious of you, Keith. Okay, so uh, I just want to remind everyone: if you're getting value from this podcast, be sure to go to iTunes, leave us a detailed review. Uh, we're trying to get to triple digits with reviews. And, uh, you know, that would definitely help surface this podcast and bring it in front of more people. Uh, we're getting more downloads every month. We thank everybody who's listening to the podcast and uh, watching us on YouTube. We greatly appreciate that. Uh, with that, Jeremy, how can we get a hold of you? Anything that you want us to check out on the web that you're doing? Uh, well, my website, adactio.com, is... Uh is very much my home on the web and has been for over 15 years, A-D-A-C-T-I-O.com. So that's where you can find me. Uh, and yeah, and I recently published a book online for free, uh, resilientwebdesign.com. So go ahead and check it out.
loaded up once in your browser, and now you've got it cached offline. Oh, perfect. There you go. Uh, Jonathan, how do we get a hold of you? Oh, but first, um, I just want to say to folks, if you're getting value from the show, um, like Twitter something uh, about WP Tonic and our sponsor, Liquid Web, that'd be well. And if it's amusing, we might actually ask you to come on the Saturday show and you could be part of the panel if it's really quite amusing. Um, it's got to be amusing, though, hasn't it, John? Uh, um, That's right. You've got to say something nice as well. Don't be beastly. Uh, um, so <laughs> and, uh, the way you can get hold of me is easier, Twitter, is at Jonathan Denwood, or you can email me, and I do reply to my email um, I'll probably be the next day, um, and that's at Jonathan at wp-tonic.com. And you can get a hold of me at my website, which is lockdowndesign.com. You can follow me on Twitter, lockdown underscore. Follow my Facebook page, uh, just lockdown design, all one word. With that, for WP Tonic, we're saying... Adios, sayonara, peace out. We'll catch you later. And stick around for the bonus content on YouTube. Thanks for listening to WP Tonic, the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week.